0: Regulative principle of worship, baptism, infant baptism, believer's baptism, which one is correct? Obviously, the name of my channel gives away my position, so what I would like to do today is have a discussion about baptism and why we as Baptists affirm what's called credo baptism. That is to say that we believe that only those who make a profession of faith— and profess Christianity in in faith, of course, in doctrine and in practice, are those who are proper candidates for baptism. Uh, but that we should not baptize infants, presuming on their birth to uh, you know godly parents, or presuming on you know some faith that is is still yet invisible to uh, those around that infant. Um, we, we are commanded in Scripture to baptize followers of Christ and those who have made that known, uh, like the Ethiopian eunuch in relation to Philip and Philip's baptism of of that person— um, and uh, like, you know, Peter in in Acts chapter 2, uh, baptizing all of those who repent and believe. And so this is a baptism episode. Welcome to the Baptist broadcast. We're talking about something today a little bit more, uh, you know, relevant to the namesake of this podcast. And so that excites me. This is Baptist distinctive stuff. And I love talking about Baptist distinctives as well as those things that are uh, pertinent to uh, broader Christianity like doctrine of God and and things of that nature. But here we're talking baptism. I am your host, Joshua Summer. I'm pastor of Victory Baptist Church in the Kansas City area. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have not already, click that subscribe button down below underneath the screen here. And also, if you listen to the podcast, just remember that you can find this podcast anywhere. You can get podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm, wherever you get your podcasts, we are there. Don't also also. Here's the other thing. This is new, so I I almost forgot about this. But we have a store. I have a store on thebaptistbroadcast.com. So if you go on thebaptistbroadcast.com, you'll see in the main menu at toward the top, the link to the store. And if you go to the store, there are ways there to support the podcast. Uh, but you get something back in return. You know, things from zip up hoodies. Uh, you know, uh, hats. Tons of cool hats on there and cups as well that you can look at. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. I love talking about baptism, and today we are going to be looking at several different source material, sources. Uh, we're going to be looking at an Orthodox Catechism uh, by Hercules Collins. We're going to be looking at questions 69, 70, 71, and 72 from that catechism. That's pretty much how we're going to, going to begin We'll look briefly at the very start here at uh, an appendix on baptism that follows the Second London Confession, 1677. In fact, if you have the edition that is printed by Solid Ground Christian Books, that appendix comes before the Baptist Catechism, but after the Baptist Confession. We're going to look at Jeremiah Burroughs. We're going to look at John Calvin. And so this is a pretty uh, involved episode. Really, we're going to be working from the assumption of the regulative principle of worship, and gently and hopefully lovingly, pushing back against infant baptism, based on the fact that we do not have an express precept or an express example from the New Testament for New Testament churches that would insinuate a pattern of infant baptism. So, uh, let's get started here. We're, I'm I'm going to begin by reading an excerpt from an appendix on baptism that, that again, is at the end of the Second London Confession, 1677, uh, printed in the Solid Ground Christian Books edition of the Baptist Confession of Faith and the Baptist Catechism. And in that appendix, the Framers write, All instituted worship receives its sanction from the precept, in other words, from God's commands, and is to be thereby governed in all the necessary circumstances thereof. That's kind of the underlying current assumption of the historical particular Baptists and General Baptists, for that matter, uh, as far as when it comes to you know administering baptism and to whom baptism ought to be administered. Now, what I want to do is I want to switch over to Hercules Collins, uh, an Orthodox Catechism, Question sixty nine. The question is, who are the proper subjects of baptism? Answer. Those who do actually profess repentance toward God and faith in obedience to in an obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you look at Acts chapter two, what he cites there, Acts chapter two, verse thirty-eight, it says, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive The gift of the Holy Spirit. So there there, therefore in that passage, or according to that passage, you have repentant persons, professing Christians, who are then put forth for baptism. And then you have the example of the Ethiopian eunuch cited there in Acts 8, verses 36 through 37, which reads, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? verse 37, then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Okay, so there's the requisite. If you believe with all your heart, you may receive the ordinance of baptism. And all of this, of course, anticipates the broader discussion between credo Baptist and Paedo-Baptists, which we're going to get to here in a moment as we begin looking at question 70 onward. Um, but it is important to note that, and, and if I was just to answer the question, you know, why are you a baptist? One of the things that I would say and probably one of the things I would I would start off with initially is just to say, well, what's clearest in the New Testament? What's least doubtful in the New Testament is that believers were baptized. What is doubtful in the New Testament, certainly doubtful in the New Testament, in fact it's 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 completely absent in my opinion, is the baptism of infants. We have no explicit precept and no explicit example of infant baptism in the New Testament. And I think that is a power, I think that's a sufficient, in fact, I think that's a sufficient answer to infant baptism. Now, you're going to have to interact with them when it comes to their typology and their understanding of the regular principle of worship, their understanding of the covenants, especially the the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of circumcision. Um, but I think just to say, I think it's quite powerful. Maybe it's underestimated and you know, even by Baptists, how powerful it is to say, look, there just is no explicit command or example in the New Testament for infant baptism. There is explicit command and example in the Old Testament for infant circumcision, um, but we don't get the same thing in the New Testament. So, if the argument is that the ordinance of circumcision under the Old Testament is kind of a proto-pattern for New Testament baptism, well, then why doesn't the New Testament follow the Old Testament in issuing a direct command and providing several express examples? It doesn't, and so I don't think we can make that you know connection um, as strongly as the Proto Baptists would want us would want us to. Um, let's move on to question seventy. Anticipating now the uh paedobaptist position our infants to be baptized is the question. Answer: None by no means, for we have neither precept nor example for that practice in all the book of God. Essentially what I was just saying that there is no there's no precept or example that would sanction such a practice and so therefore as Baptists we do not participate in that practice. And then question 71 gives us more, asking, do the scriptures anywhere expressly forbid the baptism of infants? And basically, Colin's answer is, well, it doesn't need to. His answer is, it is sufficient that the divine oracle commands the baptizing of believers, unless we will make ourselves wiser than what is written. Nadab and Abihu were not forbidden to offer strange fire, yet for so doing, they incurred God's wrath because they were commanded to take fire from the altar. And so you see the citations there, if you're watching on YouTube, the first set of citations uh, follows um, the commandment, you know, the language of of commandment for baptizing believers in the first part of the answer there. Matthew 28, 18 through 19, of course, there uh, we are commanded to baptize disciples or followers of Christ. Mark 16, 16 is the same. Uh, The second set of citations there, Leviticus 9, 24, chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, tells us that the reason Nadab and Abihu were prosecuted by the wrath of God for offering strange fire is not because God ever said at any point, do not offer strange fire. There is no... Uh, prohibition against strange fire in Scripture, and yet Nadab and Abihu were judged. Why were they judged even though there's no prohibition in Scripture against strange fire? Well, it's because they went beyond what God commanded. It's because they, they did something extra. They went beyond what God commanded. They presumed to offer something beyond what the Scriptures commanded. And in so doing, they made the assumption and the implication that Scripture, that God's Word, was not sufficient to guide their worship. And so as Baptists, we would want to say, well, we're not going to go beyond what is written or what is commanded in the New Testament for Christ's New Testament churches, because we see examples in the Old Testament where believers or unbelievers, and perhaps in the case of Nadab and Abihu, went beyond what was instructed, went beyond what was expressly commanded, and they were judged for it. And so um, it's not to say that we think that Pato baptists are going to be judged like Nadab and Abihu, but it is to say, well, we don't want to, to worship God in a way that's not commanded, because it seems like throughout Scripture, God is not pleased by worship that is uh, extra, that goes beyond what he has commanded in fact we are only to do what he has commanded no less and nothing in addition to all right and that's a basic statement of the regulative principle of worship you know the regulative principle of worship basically states that we are to worship god according to what he has prescribed not according to our imagination we're we're it's not it's not just the case that we're to do no less than what he has prescribed but it's also the case that we, we don't add things either. We don't say, just because God hasn't forbidden it means we can do it. Just because God hasn't forbidden us from putting a water slide into the baptistry means that we can therefore do it. You see what I mean? Okay, so God never forbid putting a water slide into the baptistry, and some churches and some Christians would say, well, therefore, we can do it. Uh, and we would want to say, no. Because God hasn't commanded that we do it, we want to stick to what God what God has commanded us to do, and and not to uh, not to anything beyond that. Question seventy one, um, is what we just read. Question seventy two: May the infant seed of believers under the gospel be baptized, just as the infant seed of Abraham under the law was circumcised? What Collins is doing here is he's anticipating uh, a. Typological connection between circumcision and baptism that was a popular connection to make amongst the 17th century paedo Baptists and was one of the ways in which they argued, uh, in some ways, com- you know, somewhat convincingly, for infant baptism. And their basic argument was, well, if the Old Testament included infants, uh, you know, at least by way of administering the sign of covenant membership to them. Circumcision, uh, and the New Testament never says we, we shouldn't include infants. Then, therefore, we should we should assume that that pattern continues on into the New Testament. And so Collins is anticipating that kind of argumentation here in question seventy-two, and he answers the question. He says, "No, no, uh, infant uh, belie- infants of believers under the gospel should not be baptized as infants." under the Abrahamic covenant were baptized. No, Abra- and, and the reason is, Abraham had a command then from God to circumcise his infant seed, but believers have no command to baptize their infant seed under the gospel. An interesting reply, because um, if you'd notice back in, in Genesis 17, 9 through 12 is, is, is a great example, and that's what's cited here in this, uh, in this answer. If you notice back in the Old Testament, Abraham has a direct command to circumcise uh, future generations, his posterity, right? Um, And so uh, that's what they did. Um, There was an express commandment, and then we see several examples in the Old Testament of infants, eight days old, being circumcised. But in the New Testament, we don't get the same kind of command with regard to baptism, And if the New Testament was following that same pattern of infant inclusion as the Old Testament was, then we would expect to see that commandment, right? Um, If the regulative principle applied back in the Old Testament, that what God commands, therefore we do, then then it should be applied in the New Testament, right? But in the New Testament, we don't receive a commandment or an express sanction or an example in the text of Scripture for infant baptism. Um, And I think that's quite a a consideration. Now, notice that what's happening here is Collins and other 17th century particular Baptists are arguing from the regulative principle of worship, which was uh, a pretty universal uh, post-Reformation, Reformed Orthodox, Puritan principle. Uh, And one of the places that they derived that principle from was the Nadab and Abihu narrative where they went beyond what God commanded. It's not that they violated a prohibition, but they went beyond what was positively commanded for them to do. And so this was an agreed upon principle pretty much amongst all Puritan Reformed Christians in the 17th century. And so the Baptists are employing that principle in order to say, hey, We don't think that infant baptism is consistent with this principle that we all agree on. And so for this reason, I have some words from Jeremiah Burroughs. I also have some words from Calvin uh, that I would like to look at. Now, remember what I read at the beginning from an appendix on baptism? Um, where the framers of the confession say, all instituted worship receives its sanction from the precept and is to be thereby governed in all the necessary circumstances thereof. They're not saying anything different than what their paedo-baptist brethren were saying. And so that gave the Baptists occasion to be able to say, look, we agree with you on the regulative principle of worship. And in fact, we, we agree with you so much that we're, that we're willing to say that it appears that you're being inconsistent on the point of infant baptism, because there is no express command or precept or example in the New Testament for infant baptism. And so, um, Jeremiah Burroughs, who was a Pado baptist says this, In God's worship, there must be nothing tendered up to God but what he hath commanded. Again, there's the regulative principle of worship. There must be nothing tendered up to God but what he hath commanded. Whatsoever we meddle with in the worship of God, it must be what we have a warrant for out of the Word of God. And so Baptists were simply pointing to words like the words of Burroughs and saying, look, we agree with that principle, and that's exactly why we're not baptizing infants. Because we, in the New Testament, we do not have an express command to baptize infants. Uh, We do not have an express precept or an example in the New Testament to baptize infants. So, You know, Burroughs, we agree with you. Calvin, we agree with you on the regular principle of worship. We find ourselves within that, you know, hermeneutical, you know, tradition um, and and practical tradition. And so we agree with you and we lock arms with you on that point. But we say that to say that infant baptism is, is inconsistent with that principle. Burroughs goes on to say in the same resource, When we come to matters of religion and the worship of God, we must either have a command or something out of God's word drawn from some command, wherein God manifests his will either by one, direct command, or two, comparing one thing with another and drawing a conclusion, or three, drawing consequences plainly from the words, logical conclusions, inferences, words that provide us with occasion to say, well, this is the necessary implication of that. Uh, and, and to these words, we would say, as Baptists, we would say, yes and amen. Um, yes, direct commandment, express commandment, um, comparing words in Scripture with other words, forcing us into a particular conclusion, yes. And and thirdly, drawing consequences plainly from the words, yes and amen. The problem is, in our estimation, it doesn't appear that infant baptism meets any any one of those uh, criterion. And so uh, we would want to, again, push back and say, you know, we think you're being inconsistent with your own principles here, uh, though you're making a typological co- connection between something like circumcision and baptism, uh, it would be uh, our estimation as Baptists, and, and, and the particular Baptists of the 17th century would likely agree with this, uh, it's our estimation that that's a, that's a doubtful connection. Perhaps the argument argument can be made, but that argument wouldn't fit within the purview of good and necessary consequence. Um, you might argue that it's a good consequence, uh, but can you show that it's logically necessary? In other words, that the biblical data or the premises necessarily arrives at the conclusion of infant baptism, because that's what a necessary uh, inference would be. Um, and, and I don't think that that necessity arises at any point in the Scripture. Even if you do take circumcision to be a type, uh, of baptism, which there are problems I think even even with that, um, you wouldn't be able to say that it necessarily follows that baptism ought to be administered to infants, especially when put side by side with the fact that there is no positive command or express um, example. Let's go to Calvin. You know, Calvin is kind of a, a forerunner in uh, the regular principle. the uh, The earlier reformers uh were uh, interacting with rome obviously uh and as a result the regulative principle of worship had to be restated strengthened sharpened and and set forth during the earliest years of the reformation because one of the things that the reformers that earlier generations of reformers are dealing with prior to the puritans or the post-reformation orthodox is the addendums, the several countless addendums from the Romish tradition uh, to worship that had clouded worship to such an extent that it was hardly unrecognizable according to any biblical standard. And so the the RPW, the regular principle of worship, became extremely important uh, for the period of the Reformation. So Calvin says things like this. justly, And this is the necessity of reforming the church. That's where this is coming from. He says, justly, therefore, does the Lord, in order to assert his full right of dominion, strictly enjoin what he wishes us to do and at once reject all human devices, which are at variance with his command. Justly, too, does he in express terms. Okay, so there's Calvin's a little bit stronger even than Burroughs, perhaps on this point in express terms or in explicit terms, define our limits that we may not, by fabricating perverse modes of worship, provoke his anger against us. And so maybe Calvin's even a little bit stronger than the post-Reformation Orthodox, saying that it's it's by virtue of express words that he sets limits to our worship. And so we need to be looking at express precepts and express examples. Um... Uh, and um, I, I'm not saying that Calvin would deny good and necessary consequence. I don't think he would at all. Um, but he seems to be quite strict on the point of worship and on the point that it's it's God's express commandments and his express uh, example in the Word of God that is to guide our worship. Um, of course, we would say that Calvin was not consistent with his own principle, and and that's what Baptists were saying. Calvin also says this, But since God not only regards as fruitless, but also plainly abominates whatever we undertake from zeal to his worship, if at variance with his command—there's that language again—if at variance with his command, what do we gain by a contrary course? The words of God are clear and distinct. Obedience is better than sacrifice. In vain do they worship me, teaching for for doctrines the commandments of men. Every addition to his word, especially in this matter, is a lie— mere will worship uh, and, and and he's he writes will worship in the Greek which would be uh, etheleth, ethelethraesia I guess um, is vanity will worship is vanity this is the decision and when once the judge has decided it is no longer time to debate and so he's basically saying clear commandments or what guide our worship clear example is what guide our worship guides our worship. And, and so Baptists were pushing back, especially in the 17th century, against their Paedo-Baptist brethren, saying, hey, you know, I think, we think you are inconsistent with your own principles. And so that's why, right here in question 72, Collins is is pressing this connection between circumcision and baptism that the Paedo-Baptists were making in the 17th century, um, and saying, you know, one of the problems with, with relying too heavily on this connection is that you have to realize that while Abraham had a command for circumcision and for the circumcision of infants on the eighth day, um, we don't have a command under the new Testament for baptism of infants. And we don't have a command certainly for baptism of infants on the eighth day. There are all sorts of other, uh, you know, points of discontinuity between circumcision and baptism. Obviously circumcision applied only to males Uh, baptism is administered to both male and female. Um, there's no, there's of course no eighth day commandment in the new Testament. So many Presbyterian churches, beta Baptist churches don't, there's no eighth day. They they don't really follow an eighth day pattern. Um, so, so, you know, if we're going to bring, if we're going to bring the principle over from the old Testament, why not bring it over completely and, and, um, uh, and intact, rather than, you know, kind of chopping it up. Um, so anyway, this is uh, an episode on baptism, uh, a little bit of, of, a, uh, of a view into um, the historical source material. There's much more we could do on here. There's, of course, a 25-minute episode doesn't do justice to this discussion. Um, I would recommend a, a few resources one of the resources being uh, From Shadow to Substance, uh, which is a, a book by Dr. Sam Rinehan, um, and that is a, a solid historical uh, work, uh, historical theology, looking at the, the tradition of the 17th century, uh, particular Baptists, their covenant theology uh, especially, which drives really much of this. We didn't get into a whole lot of that. Um, uh, and then you can compare that work with Andrew Woolsey's uh, work. Andrew Woolsey wrote a book. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, he wrote a book uh, titled Unity and Continuity in Covenantal Thought. And that's, you know, a Presbyterian or pado historical survey. Uh, it's kind of a nice parallel to Sam Rinehan's. And in fact, when we did, uh, I-, I took a class under under uh, Sam on uh, historical Baptist covenant theology. We had to read both of those books together, uh, his book and then this, this unity and continuity in covenantal thought. And it's very helpful uh, to be able to sort through these issues and think about them more clearly. So hopefully this episode was helpful. If it was, please share it. If it was helpful for you, maybe it'll be helpful for someone else. Uh, if you have not subscribed to the channel yet, please do so. Click the bell for continued notifications. We will catch you next time.